This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be brave. Gotta be brave. I'll be brave in a new world. I'll be brave. Brave. Brave in a new world. That's one of the voices from Brave in a New World, the newest production from Judy Dwarren Performance Project. It presents the stories of women who reentered society after serving time in York Correctional Institution, the only state prison for female offenders. Four ex-inmates joined the professional ensemble of the Judy Dwarren Performance Project. And some of those uh, former inmates are in studio with us, as well as Judy Dorman. Dorman, welcome to where we live, Judy. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you're founder and executive and artistic director of the Performance Project. Yes, I am. Also in studio with us is Robin Cullen, a performer in Brave in a New World. Uh, she's a board member for the Judy Dwarren Performance Project, a consultant, a group facilitator, and artist. Robin, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Good morning. And Lisa Sramps, performer in Brave in a New World, also an artist and grandmother. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'll start with you, Judy. Uh, we know, um, if we've been in Hartford for some time, that you've been working in theater um, for a long time, including uh, work, residency work at York Correctional Institution. Mm-hmm. For our listeners who don't know, that is um, the state women's prison uh, is, in yeah. Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So tell us about what brought you there. Um, well, I don't think I expected particularly to um, to work in, in a women's prison, but um, a chance encounter with Wally Lamb, who was doing a writing writing program there, and he said, have you ever thought about working in a women's prison? And we work with a lot of underserved populations, and also we're very interested in working with people that don't have a voice or haven't been heard and giving them a voice. And so it seemed like an interesting idea. And what seemed like an interesting idea became a really transformative one for me. So how long have you been doing it? 2005? Yes. So we're on our 12th year. Tell us about this newest uh, production. Brave in a New World is a sequel to a piece that we did in 2014 in my shoes when we started working and trying to integrate women who had been released from York, who had been part of our programs, also who were working in resettlement program with community partners in action in the community to continue that arts engagement with us and with the professional ensemble. So we did a piece called In My Shoes, which was really bringing the voices of women both inside prison and who were out together and out to the, to the general public. And it felt like there was more to say. There's lots more to say, more than just two pieces. And so Brave in a New World really looks at what it's like to come home from prison. Reentry is a big topic right now. It's something that we think about a lot. And so it's a focus really on what it is like to come home, what it's like to be there, but then what it's like to come home. And it juxtaposes that story with the voices of children who have to deal with the separation from their parent when their parent is in prison, because we work with those kids in the community a lot. Let's shift to some of the performers who are in studio with us again, uh, Robin and Lisa. Robin, uh, tell me a little bit about your your backstory um, and how you got to know Judy. Mm. I did not meet Judy until after uh, my time at York. It was... um, the first production that Judy had done, bringing the work to the stage out in the general public, and I was invited um, because of my work with Wally Lamb to do the talkbacks with the audience. They were looking for someone who had been at York, and so I um, did talk talkbacks with the audience to time in the very first production, and have been ever since because I can't not do this after what my experience has been. Tell me about what led you to York. What was your time like there? Mm, my time. Well, my what I've seen is many people end up at York because of 
past trauma turning into a circumstance that manifests as crime, and then they become incarcerated. My story is probably a little bit different because my choices were made in adult life, and it was a bad choice to drink and drive. And um, I ended up taking a life, which landed me at York. But the whole, the, the big story is that it was not what I ever expected. I had an idea of what prison might be, but I never really thought about it because it didn't, you know, it didn't um, come into my world. And my eyes were wide open to so many social issues that the trauma behind um, the crime, the trauma behind the, you know, trouble that we have in families and communities and our society. And so, um, you know, ultimately I got involved with Wally Lamb and that, um, you know, watching women overcome by sharing their stories and finding out they're not alone. And much of that is what we still do with this work, with the women at York, with, um, you know, bringing this to the public because we are good people who made bad choices. And it's not about, um, you know, it's not about anything other than that. And healing is what we're looking for is the end result. And we can't heal people through punishment. You know, my healing happened because of the groups that I attended, because of the work with Judy, because of the community support. I wasn't punished well. You know, it's been, um, it's been proven time and time again that community support is really an important piece. And bringing this work outside of the prison and allowing women who've been incarcerated to gather on the outside and be supported the same way that we found community inside. And so, the, you know, this next step working on the outside also keeps us connected because the reentry piece is where people often fall into the big dark hole because there isn't support. And we're going to talk more about um, that support that's available uh, within prison and then without uh, later in the show. I wanted to turn to uh, to Lisa Srams. Tell me about um, what led you to York and what was it like for you there? Well, what led me to York is I made a couple of mistakes when I was younger made a couple of bad choices, but I used those choices and those experiences because I met Judy in 2008, and I was incarcerated, and I started off as her roadie and setting up for her, and then from there, we started speaking, and um, she actually asked me to join, which I was very honored to join because the healing process that you go through, writing, dancing, and the singing, it it's something that you don't get inside the prison besides inside the mental health unit with different groups and the choices that you do to make sure that you want to heal is the point. You have to accept the fact that you have to face a lot of things that have happened to you, that you have been involved in the trauma. And until you can really face that, you cannot actually heal. And you cannot move forward in your life. And for me, it was a big step for me because using Judy's program, amongst other programs that started coming in, if we didn't have the outside to come inside and who weren't afraid to come inside, then a lot of us would not heal and be where we are today. And as far as York, I had went in when I was 19 for a murder charge, which Connecticut does not have a self-defense law. So therefore, I was given 10 years. And then I was released. And I ended up right back in 2008 for a hindering a prosecution with a family situation. So for me, 
the choices that I made before entering York on my last bid was I've always put someone else in front of me. And I had to learn to put myself first. And now that I have done that, I have been able to be a better person, a better mother, a better friend, and make choices and bring awareness to people because the things that we, everybody makes a mistake. It's not the mistake that's the problem. It's what you do after the mistake. Because if you continue to go left when you should be going right, it's not a good thing, you know, and the support that I have, because there's a lot of people that I actually grew up with that actually worked in a facility, and they took time out to avoid some of the rules and still reach out and, you know, give that support. And when you have a support system, because not only did you have a support system with the volunteers coming in, you had a support system. There's a family within a family inside the prison. You create your family background. So, therefore, a lot of close-knit people help you get through whatever you got to get through. And that right there is is power alone. So um, both you and Robin were mentioning um, how uh, Judy's uh, residency um, and, and the writing workshops helped you heal. Uh, but meanwhile, uh, while you're trying to find support inside, life is going on outside. Uh, let's hear a clip um, from the show, Brave in a New World. Um, this is Lisa, again, uh, Lisa Srams, who spent some time at York and is uh, one of the performers in Brave in a New World. Uh, this is you talking about learning that you're going to be a grandmother. I lie in my bed and I stare at the ultrasound picture on my wall. And all I can think, see, dream, and imagine is that I'm going to be your grandmother and I'll make it home for the birth. The excitement has me up tonight. The pure joy of holding this child, my grandchild, is a growing amazement since I opened my mail today. God has given me a second chance, a second chance to right my wrongs, mistakes, and failures through my son's unborn child. To have those little Tell us about that excerpt and how you um, came to the point where you wanted to share that in this performance. Well, like I said, um, writing with Judy, you know, you learn to heal. And I had made so many mistakes in my son's life, not being there physically, but trying to be there mentally and emotionally. It's kind of difficult when you're incarcerated. And, you know, he had a lot of anger. So we got to a point where we could actually deal with all of that. And we did. And, you know, I was talking to him. He was like, you know, I had called one day. Actually, I think it was after a Judy (laughs) rehearsal. And he was like, I got something to tell you, but don't get mad. And I'm like, okay. And then when he said, when he kept going into that, I'm like, okay, what is it? Who's pregnant? And there it was. And then I actually spoke to his girlfriend. And then they told me, and I was like, well, I'm excited. And then I, and it was, then as soon as I went in my room, because I hadn't been in there, my mail was on the ground. So when I opened it, the ultrasound picture fell out. So, It's very exciting because, like I said, in the piece, you know, I was given a second chance. So everything that I went wrong with my son, I'm doing right with my granddaughter. And I tell you one thing, being a grandmother is is the deepest, most gratifying, exciting. The love is just 
amazing when it comes to your grandchild. I mean, it is for your child, but it's even deeper when it comes to your grandchild. And I never really understood that because a lot of people used to say, you don't understand. Wait, just wait. And now I see and now I know. That's Lisa Strands, a performer in Brave in a New World. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're taking a look at this uh, performance that will be premiering at the Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts next week. It's a performance, uh, the latest project from the Judy Jorwin Performance Project. Um, If you've been, um, if you've experienced prison, if you uh, have a loved one who is in prison, uh, we'd like to hear your story. 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Judy, Brave in a New World again is showcasing the stories of former inmates, uh, not only their experience inside, but then the transition outside. And you had mentioned earlier um, with all the attention on Governor Malloy's Second Chance Mm -hmm. Society initiatives, the idea that our criminal justice system needs reformed, Mm -hmm. that people, when they make a, a bad decision, they do their time, they come out, they deserve that second chance. When we had a conversation a few weeks ago, you mentioned that there's another population, an invisible population that's affected by incarceration, and that's the voices, the children. Mm -hmm. This piece includes the voices of children, children with incarcerated parents. Tell us about your decision to include that, and how did you you find these children, and how did you get them to want to communicate about this? Well, um, we found the children really through the work that we began with the women at York and seeing the families' performances and seeing what it meant to the families to, to, to see their moms, sisters, grandmothers perform. And we realized, you know, there's this population here, the families and the kids, that, that are largely unaddressed and are very invisible. So we started to do an outreach to, we have in-school programs in the Hartford Public Schools as well as after-school programs that reach out to children who have parents in prison. Um, Kids carry it around as a very tightly held secret, and they don't have a space to really open up and discuss it and share it. So we found in these groups that there was almost a familial bonding that happened amongst the kids because there was such a sense of relief that everybody in the room knew exactly what it was, and they didn't have to hide it. They could share it. They could do arts activities. They could talk about what it was like as well as what other things were like. So we don't always talk about it. Every week we don't say, well, what's happening with your feelings about having your parent? But really, as they're ready to, they start to share. And we saw and have seen and are seeing really big behavioral changes. And um, and it's very, very beautiful work. So it felt to me like that story really needed to counterpoint this one of coming home because because I think they are a population that isn't heard. And so it was thinking of a way to bring their voices in, but also protect their um, anonymity. They're part of the sound score. We hear their wonderful voices. And we also, the piece starts out with the women as as children and as innocents. And, and so, and then that childhood role gets taken by the kids who actually are kids and who are who are all experiencing this and what their bravery is in, in standing up to it. So we're going to hear some of those voices of the children that are, um, mm-hmm. their voices are featured in Brave in a New World. A wonderful dream that went through my dream catcher is that mommy came out of jail. This building that I am drawing is solid. We went to Chuck E. Cheese. I have to figure out how to get through it. Then we sing a rhythm. Day by day, step by step, I climb to reach the top. Then we went to the beach and had fun as a family. The top is where mommy gets out of jail and we will be together again. 
So it's not easy to hear those. These are, these are actual children. These aren't children you know, reading the words of children that have incarcerated parents. These are the actual children um, talking about their feelings with a, an incarcerated parent. Yeah, the, the two children that you just heard wrote the words that they say. Yeah. And, they, um, and they've actually been with us in our group for a long time. We, many of the children that we've seen over years, we don't just see them for a short time and then it's done. It's a, real long, it's a, it's a long-term process. It's interesting because we often hear about the stigma. You know, again, two women here who've had experience uh, in prison and how society views you, even if after you've done the time. But thinking about how children also feel that stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there from your work uh, at York? Um, is there more being done within our school systems to reach out to these children, or is this something that you know? Luckily, these children are able to find uh, this support within this writing group. It's more the latter. It's more the luckily because um, very often the kids aren't identified. Um, It's not necessarily in their record that their dad or mom is in prison. And so I think sometimes teachers find out about it or whatever, but there isn't any concerted effort to say this is a track of kids that really we need to to watch for this. And there is a lot of stigma, and there can be bullying, and there can be a sense of shame, there can be a sense of guilt, anger, abandonment, and all those things need to be processed in healthy ways. And and very often, if they're not looked at, then they aren't. I want to turn back to Lisa. I mean, what's your take? What do you think um, needs to happen to help children who have incarcerated parents? Well, another Judy program literally, and not just in a particular area, but it needs to not only be statewide, it needs to be nationwide, because there are so many parents that are incarcerated, and the children are forgot about. They're not addressed. They have issues. There's counseling that needs to happen. There's reunification that needs to happen. And personally, my feelings with DCF, they're not like they used to be. They're not as involved as they should be, because... If they were, I mean, I really just feel like a lot of the issues that the children go through in dealing with their parents being incarcerated, as well as well as the schools. The schools do need to have a section where, you know, they're aware of a parent being gone. They could be being raised by their aunt, but the home may not be as safe or as comfortable for that child because they miss their parents. And no one really likes talking about your parents in jail. They don't really like to say that. There was a time where someone told my son I was in college. I said, don't ever do that. Because then the lies begin. And that pain develops. And that's, that shouldn't happen. Because when it starts to develop, you don't know what happens from there. And that's the problem. Once the pain begins, the hurt is already there. So the pain begins and then comes the anger, comes the whatever the case may be. But after school programs I know do help. But like I said, I think it really needs to be addressed a little bit more within the school system and even within the home, just learning not to lie to the child. Can you talk about your relationship with your son while you were uh, in prison? And then- oh, it was, it was rocky. I mean, the first time I went in, my son was two and a half. So in the beginning, he really didn't understand anything that was going on. And like I said, they tried to say, you know, she's here, she's there. Don't do that. For me, it was don't do that because growing up myself, I was lied to too much in my life for with by my parents that 
I would never inflict that on my child. And a lot of things that I didn't want inflicted on my child that had happened to me did actually happen, but it wasn't by choice. It Things just ended up, that's the way it was. So for me, it was difficult in the beginning, but once my son started to really understand and get a grasp on this is where I am and I'm not coming home for a little while, it was difficult for him. You know, he developed a lot of anger issues and he didn't know where to put that misplaced anger. So he acted out. It was a lot of fights. It was a lot of screaming, tantrums. You know, there was a couple of times where they actually called me in the prison from where he was to tell him to take meds. And I mean, that's another thing. You really don't want your child on meds, but then what do you do? Judy, did you want to add? I just wanted to say that one of the things that, that has been wonderful in, in our work in the schools is our partnership with social workers and that there have been amazing social workers in the, in the schools and also families in crisis, social workers um, working with us in the after-school program um, and um, so and community partners in action resettlement with working with women that are released. So it's a wonderful arts partnership with um, social work that I think is, is, is really the um, is key. And we're going to hear from one of those social workers uh, working within the Department of Correction in just a little bit. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking to women who are sharing stories of their time in prison and their experiences once they got out. It's a new production from Judy Dworin Performance Project called Brave in a New World. Again, it's premiering next week in Hartford. We'll have details on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. The stories focus on confinement and separation, but also the transition ex-offenders make when they return to their communities. The stories are told through spoken word, song, and dance to show that life doesn't necessarily get easier just because they're now free from prison. I wanted uh, to turn back to uh, Robin Cullen. Um, Let's talk about some of the challenges you faced. Uh, In the performance, you talk about coming home from prison and the emotions associated with that experience. Let's hear this clip. As we cross the hill, I see the house I grew up in on the left. What the heck? There's a huge banner hanging on the house. As I read it, I feel completely on fire by the time I reach the exclamation point. It says, welcome home, Robin. My red-faced, breathless stare looks like anger, but this time, red is the color of shame. I'm not coming home from college or the military. I know they missed me, but for God's sake, I was in prison. You talk about feeling shame when you were coming home. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, from way back before coming home, the shame that goes with you know, my my behavior and finding, you know, looking in self-reflection, looking back, how did I get here? And what, you know, what was that process for me? And looking back and realizing that my choices, um, you know, the the outcome of hurting so many people comes back on my choices. And, you know, the then I start to understand things behind that. And it becomes looking back at family history, it becomes, you know, mental health, um, addiction, alcoholism, all these things that bring so much shame because there was a time where all of these things weren't talked about or shared and what goes on in this house stays in this house. And so coming out from under that 
and being, you know, being part of that process, recognizing that, you know, that there's that that there are things that aren't don't feel normal outside of our home, and then you know, in my dysfunctional family, which you know is pretty common, but these things that we don't talk about, so we don't feel part of or connected, and then to have you know to have been gone so long, a few years come home and it's like a celebration. I don't, you know, there was the part of me where I kind of didn't want anyone to know, you know, and now there's this huge sign on the house and like, wow. But then I look at it from the perspective of my family, because when someone is incarcerated, their entire family, you know, the children, the family, it ripples out community. You know, it's a, it's a social issue. It's not just about the person who um, commits the crime. And so that was like all up in my face coming up the hill. I was like, oh, my God. You know, there's there's just so many emotions that go with it. Of course, I was celebrating my freedom, but I also knew that once I get out of prison, I still have the guilt and the shame and the, you know, the, the long road ahead to carry this with me and, you know, try to figure out how I'm going to navigate through my life because when the prison sentence ends, ends the you know the event still happened and people are still hurt and you know there's still a life lost and you know all of those things are still happening simultaneously to the fact that my family's celebrating me coming home and so there's so many layers and so many things that you know as a when we look at the subject of incarceration we don't look at all these layers and all these you know all the things that happen as side effects and you know, these are the things that happen. And it's about our broken society, our broken communities, our broken family units. And it all comes back to the trauma underneath. You know, the things that happened in my family along the lines were were the root of what played out as this criminal behavior, so to speak. And so, you know, looking back at that and seeing that no matter how much healing I did while I was in prison and the groups I did and self-reflection, all those things, oh, my God, my family didn't do that. And so all of a sudden I realized that it was, you know, that I was growing and changing, but that I was, it was like a time warp. I got dropped back into the moment that I left because no one took that journey with me from my own family. So it was extremely, I don't know, the guilt and shame is just, you know, something to always, I think that we always deal with on a daily basis. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're talking with a couple of performers, uh, former inmates at York Correctional Institution, about uh, their involvement in a new production called Brave in a New World. It's the latest from the Judy Doran Performance Project. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear more about the support that uh, inmates face or have in prison and then when they leave. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Today we're talking about prisoner reentry in the context of Brave in a New World, premiering at the Greater Hartford Academy of the Arts next week, September 15th. Information is on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Joining us in studio now is Deborah Gala, Programs Operation Director at Community Partners in Action. Deborah, welcome to Where We Live. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, Before we hear more about your organization, I wanted to play another clip from the performance. Again, uh, Lisa Srams is also in studio with us, and she's an ex-inmate and also performs in Brave in a New World. Uh, This clip, Lisa, you highlight one of the challenges ex-offenders face once they're on the outside. I'm dressed professionally, hair, makeup done, clothes just right. On my way out, I look in the mirror, blow myself a kiss, and say, you got this girl, go get him. I meet a woman named Damaris. We shake hands, enter the office, and I sit and wait patiently as she reviews all my extensive qualifications and smile when she speaks on how impressed she is. And then, like music to my ears, can you start on Monday? My joy is short-lived, however. That now familiar bombshell drops. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? What happens, Lisa? Well, I didn't get that job, but um, it's very difficult. It's You can be so qualified for something, but when that question comes up, you debate whether to check it or not because some people say, have you been convicted in the last five years? Have you convicted in the last seven years? And you don't want to say no. You want to be honest. But sometimes being honest, it's, it's like a slap in the face because it's like they're not looking at you. They looked at your, you and your qualifications, and they went from looking at you and your qualifications to looking at that stigma. And they don't realize that some, some employers can actually get bonded for hiring ex-offenders. So we could actually be a tax write-off, but you don't, you don't realize that because all you hear is, oh, my God, they were in jail. Do I really want them working for me? Are they going to cause problems? Are they going to do this? And then you have some that will actually sit down in an interview, which I did have recently, and talk to you and not focus on that mistake. So you have, it's a 50-50, but it's just difficult because you could be qualified to work at Aetna, but you have to work at Burger King flipping burgers because you were incarcerated. How long did it take you to get a job after you were released? Actually, when I got, it didn't take me any time, but it was the point of I actually had a network. One of my closest friends, as well as Deb, because I worked with their program, helped me to go out into this, go out into the society and find different jobs, placements, you know, go to temp agencies. I went to all of that, but I actually lucked out because one of my closest friends, who was actually released six years ago, was working at a restaurant, and I ended up working at that restaurant with her, and I stayed there for a while. But then when you want to transition because you want more, you want, you, want, you want more than minimum wage. But it's also difficult for those who haven't been incarcerated to get a position right now. So, but then when you have that mistake on you, it's even harder. Deborah Gala, you again are with the nonprofit Community Partners in Action. So how are you working with people like Lisa when they're released? Yeah, Lisa's exactly right. I mean, the stigma is huge for individuals coming out of prison, and that's the reality. We live in a really judgmental society, and having that peace on your record, having that criminal record, is extremely challenging. I mean, that is a reality for so many of our individuals. Training is a big piece of what CPA does, helping individuals get additional training in order to boost up that resume, helping individuals answer that question of the criminal background, and then the reality of working with the employer to help them understand understand the population that we work with, that anybody that you hire is a risk. 
and understanding that the in, the individual is working with them and that they're going to have a support system with them when they hire the population that we're working with. But helping the, the, uh, the society realize that these are human beings that we're working with. We interviewed a, an ex-offender last week, and, and he said when he got out, he was able to either get a, a job in a restaurant or working in a warehouse. Is that the, are these the employers that are more likely to hire someone that has a prison record, Deborah? Yes. Without the skills and the training, that is most likely the job that a lot of people are getting. And how do uh, people who are leaving prison, how do they get connected to nonprofits that support network in their community? Where we run, um, and that's how we got in touch with Judy Dorn's project, we uh, have a one program called the Resettlement Program, and that works with individuals prior to release. And for me, that's the biggest piece of a reentry program is to actually start long before someone gets out of prison and work with them months before they get out, the day they get out, and follow them at least at the very least for the year of transition. That's a real solid reentry program. And if we had every individual incarcerated going through that process, for me, that would be really good, solid reentry programming. Joining us now by phone is Jill Sandora, a clinical social worker at York Correctional Institution. Again, that's Connecticut's women's prison. Jill, welcome to where we live. Thank you. So uh, just piggybacking off of what Deb said, you know, what work is being done within our prison system to help inmates who are going to be released soon to find a job, to get connected to services they need? Um, We do have some programs here that are geared towards that. That's the commissioner's main focus is, you know, reentry. Unfortunately, it's not always accessible to all the women here and not always in a timely manner for them. We see programs like Resettlement Program being one of the more effective programs because they start working with the women prior to release and getting them ready to go home. There is a new um, building on our minimum side uh, of the prison that is focusing on preparing them to get home, um, helping them to find jobs, those kinds of things, teaching them to be yoga uh, trained yoga teachers, those types of things that hopefully will help them be more marketable when they leave here. Um, You said that not all uh, inmates are connected to these services. Why is that? Part of it is because some of them need to stay on our maximum security side, and a lot of these opportunities are on our minimum security side. The good thing about, once again, what Deborah Gala was talking about is that they can reach both sides of this prison, which is very helpful. So when you say max and minimum, so depending on the severity of the crime? The length of time, um, the crime that they committed, um, possible other um, stipulations that make that they can't go to our east minimum security side. I wanted to turn back uh, to Robin Cullen, again, a performer in Brave in a New World, um, also had spent some time at York Correctional Institution. What worked for you to get connected to a job once you were released? Mm The uh, the most amazing thing happened. I was able to go back to the job I had prior to being incarcerated. Um, I worked in a health food store, and the woman who owned the store um, hired me back. But the challenge was transportation because many of us coming out don't have a vehicle, don't have transportation, and so I had to figure out how to get to work. I had to learn the bus system. I had to totally readjust. And, um, you know, part of my sentence was that I had lost my driving privilege for a year. 
And so, you know, that challenge alone hinders employment. And so I was very supported with family, by family and by um, friends and prior employers. So I, you know, I, I didn't have a difficult time with that. But I watch women struggle over and over again. And, you know, the piece, we're, we're looking at the piece of getting a job, but there are so many components to that. And, you know, I challenge anybody to just, you know, where you work now, go online and try to figure out if you had to take a bus to get to your job today, how would you do that? And, you know, that's what we're expecting people to do. Oh, just take the bus. But it's, you know, for some people, it's an hour, an hour and a half. You miss a bus, you're late for work. You know, so trans- there's so many layers to, you know, to this one um, component, which is part of surviving on the outside. And so, you know, chicken and the egg, right? Job, transportation, you know, we look at those things. But and then you yeah. add substance abuse and mental health to it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And coping skills and, yeah. you know, all those things that it becomes a challenge for, you know, somebody that didn't have any of these, you know, things happen in their life. Deb, I want to go back to you again. You're with Community Partners in Action, a nonprofit that is helping connect uh, people who are ex-offenders uh, once they're on the outside, not just to employment, um, but also just uh, other um, services they may need. Um, can you talk about, um, Robin made the comment about, you know, transportation is a big um, a big problem. If you can't find a way to get somewhere, how do you get the job? But what are some other real-life challenges that people are facing on the outside? Yeah, that's a huge one. I, I would say housing is another big one. And those mental health issues and substance abuse issues are all linked together. The trauma issues, you you, you both spoke about those uh, brilliantly earlier. And, you know, Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor are helping with some of those challenges of getting to work and then providing those basic need support services, which are so critical. Because if you don't have those basic need um, funding line items to help with those areas when you're talking about education and um, employment services together. They have to be together because just getting the job, if you're actively using, you can't be working. You if you don't have a place to live, you can't be working. <laughs> you mentioned funding line items. So, you know, my next question was about, you know, the state budget crisis. And so we hear often about um, reform initiatives from the governor's office. But yeah. when it comes time to, to get a balanced budget, I mean, what programs um, that would help former inmates may not be getting the funding? Yeah, Connecticut has, has was hit hard and specifically with the judicial branch and Department of Correction was hit really hard this this past uh, fiscal year. And fortunately, CPA has a um, Department of Labor grant that we run called Train to Work. And we still have funding through that line item that has helped with the employment and training piece. But resettlement specifically was hit extremely hard. We lost the majority of our funding. Um, we're working on getting alternative funding from the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. But that's one of our biggest reentry programs. Um, and so we're hopeful that we will continue to address these critical issues because this is a population that, um, you know, 95% of individuals incarcerated are coming out. And we need to provide solid programming. Both Robin and Lisa talked about taking responsibility. And that's what it's about. Individuals are taking responsibility. I've been in this field for 22 years. I've never met an individual that wanted to live a life of going back and forth 
in and out of prison. Reducing that recidivism rate is our priority. And Jill Sandoro, clinical social worker at York Correctional Institution, I wanted to go back to you. Um, what do you hear from um, inmates who have had time on the outside and because of circumstances they end up back in prison? What support do they still need to, to keep that recidivism rate low? You know, I think everything that everyone has mentioned about trying to find a job, transportation, housing, um, getting insurance to be able to stay on medications if they do take medications, all of those things impact whether they're going to be successful out there or not. Um, being able to reach out to people in the outside, Judy's program and Deborah Gala, the, thing, the work that they do, having them feel connected in the community um, is so important because a lot of these women make connections here that help them, but we are not here to help them once they go home. They need that continued support when they go home. So anything that allows them to have access to jobs, access to housing, to clothing, um, all of those needs are really important. And family support is huge. Not all these women here have family support. Um, They don't always have a place to go, and they can't always get reconnected with their children. And those things impact their decisions when they're out there. We're almost out of time. I want to turn back to Judy Dwarren, again, founder and executive and artistic director of the Judy Dwarren Performance Project. What do you hope Brave and New World will uh, do when people see it next week in greater and harder places? Well, I really hope it will open people's minds. Um, It will bring awareness and understanding to some of the issues that we're talking about today. And I think most of all, it will open up the idea that we are all human and that there is this essential humanity that we need to, we need to look at these questions through the lens of, of humanity of, and the humanness of the story. The stories that people will hear are stories that they won't, they won't hear very often and, and almost never. Some of them are from women that are still on the inside. Many are from women who have been there and are now out, the kids. Um, I think that that they will be moved. And in being so moved, um, we'll think about how we might be able to change things and develop them and make them better than they are. I want to say thanks to Judy Dwarren, and also Robin Cullen and Lisa Srams and Jill Sandor, who joined us by phone, and Deborah Gallo from Community Partners in Action. Thank you so much for your time. Um, we're almost out of time. We're going to go to break, but you can hear more and get more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, to find out about Brave in a New World. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, it's been 15 years since the terrorist attacks on 9-11. 15 years. We'll talk to two people personally affected by the tragedy about their lives since. That's tomorrow. Right now, we're going to shift uh, to a, a story that's been getting a lot of attention here in Connecticut and nationally. And on the phone with us is a reporter from the Danbury News Times, Dirk Parafort. Dirk, welcome to where we live. Hi. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. So the story that we wanted to focus on for the last part of the show is the story of Panna Crom of Danbury. Um, she's a woman that's been serving time at York uh, for manslaughter and the death of her newborn. Tell us about Panna. Um, well, you know, I was 
interesting. I heard Jill talking before about, you know, family support and how huge that is when they get out. Um, and I think that's one thing in Panna's case where, um, you know, from sentencing up to the clemency hearing yesterday, um, she's had a large group of, you know, family and friends who've been kind of standing behind her and supporting her this whole time. And uh, I think that probably made a big uh, impact on the outcome of this, this case um, to this point. So you referenced that the Connecticut Board of Pardons and Parole, they held a hearing um, yesterday where they commuted her sentence. So she was, she pled guilty um, almost 10 years ago to killing her newborn. You know, why did this hearing come up now? Um, well, it uh, it took about three years worth of work on um, from volunteers on her behalf to get to that point. Um, and her argument was that the sentencing uh, was uh, more punitive uh, than anything else at this point, that the majority of uh, mothers who had similar cases only served about uh, were sentenced to one and a half to two years in prison. Um, That's interesting. Um, you know, again, she was so she was she pled guilty to manslaughter. Uh, uh, her sentence was 18 years, but her supporters said that um, she was treated harshly. Yeah, well, they said that the sentence was too punitive and that she could do uh, more work on the outside. Um, State's attorney uh, Steve Sedensky, who argued against it, noted that she was uh, originally charged with murder. And when you look at comparative cases and murder, uh, the sentence was appropriate. Um, He did note that she also was um, up for parole in January uh, 2019 and had preferred uh, to wait until that time, I think. What's interesting about this case, too, uh, Dirk, is you know people want to have sympathy for her because she was a teenager, and, and again, the circumstances was she hid her pregnancy, she didn't know who to turn to um, allegedly, um, and you know she killed her newborn. But the flip side is, you know, she killed a baby. This baby does not is not alive today, and so you know why was 18 years not a suitable sentence? Yeah, I mean it's a very very difficult case um, in that respect. Um, the, um, you know, ask that question again. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, just the flip side. What have you been hearing in Danbury, the, com- the community of Danbury, who may have yeah. know, that know her family, the fact that, again, that she did murder her newborn? Why was 18 years not sufficient? Yeah, well, I mean, Steve Sinensky really uh, went into the horrendous nature of the crime um, and why he felt it was uh, appropriate, noting that she had flushed the toilet on several occasions. Um, And, of course, the defense noted that, you know, here's a 16-year-old girl who gave birth by herself in a bathroom uh, with no assistance or any knowledge of um, pregnancy or labor. And, you know, I can only imagine what that would be like for a 16-year-old girl to go through that, having watched my wife go through it three times already. Um, But, um, you know, it's a very difficult case, I think, on both sides. I know Sedensky had mentioned that he thought that there were some people who did reach out to help her. Um, there was a teacher and a friend's parent who tried to reach out to her. Um, I know she said she had considered uh, abortion or um, adoption, but she said that those just didn't seem right for her, which seemed a little odd to me to a certain respect. Mm. Um, so, Can we talk about, is this rare that, the again, the Connecticut Board of Pardons and Parole, they commuted her sentence, she'll be released September 30th. Is it rare for this to happen? 
Yeah, no, it's extremely rare. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why Steve was so against it at that point. Um, he said in this case they were almost acting more as a sentence review board instead of a clemency board. And uh, he didn't feel that was appropriate in this case. Um, you know, obviously it got a lot of public attention um, and it got a lot, there was a lot of volunteers and a lot of family support who worked with uh, Pana over the last three years to try and get to this point. Um, obviously, you know, she also did do a lot of work um, volunteering, uh, talking with other troubled teens about her experiences, um, and uh, so I think that favored in her behalf also. And at this hearing, for us, uh, for many of us who've never covered uh, the commutation hearing uh, such as this, any, any indication from the uh, board members of, of why they decided this way? No, actually, there was the board members made no comments after the hearing. Uh, they came out of executive session and they they handed down their um, the verdict in the case and just closed the hearing up at that point. So, no real comment from them as to why they decided to go in this direction. And reaction from Panna and her family. Uh, they were just obviously overjoyed. I mean, her parents have been visiting her every Saturday, taking the drive from uh, Bessel, the hour-and-a-half drive, up to Niantic every Saturday to visit her for nine years. And, uh, you know, they just said that they were just happy and thankful to have their, their girl back and their daughter back. I want to thank Dick Parafort, a prime reporter for the Danbury News Times. He covered the state pardons and parole board hearing on Wednesday. When Panna Crom received the news, her prison sentence was commuted. She'll be free from prison later this month after serving nearly 10 of an 18-year sentence for manslaughter in the death of her newborn in 2006. Thank you, Dirk. Thanks, Lucy. I appreciate it. The show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening today. <laughs>